Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm hitting record. We are recording. And uh, and it's nice to have you uh, back in, in Angleterre. Very so, nice so, to be back. So well done. Uh, you, you haven't brought any contagious diseases with you, have you? A slight sore throat, so you oh, never know. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's how it starts. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back in the Bay Area. I'm in Oakland. Today, I'm joined by Doug Levy over there in you're in marin aren't you doug i am just across the bay from you we should be in the Ooh. same place uh, you know what why don't you swim over come meet me for a drink afterwards i could do that <laughs> or conversely just come over on the bridge anyway and also in london the other side of the atlantic and you definitely can't uh, travel there by a bridge or even swim we have emma burnell say hello folks hiya doug you didn't say hello sorry Hello, folks. <laughs> Thank you. In a week that has seen world markets tumble with the fears that the coronavirus will disrupt global supply chains, we ask, is America ready for a Bernie revolution? Let me, let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. Let me thank the thousands of volunteers in New Hampshire. Thank you. Who knocked on doors in the rain and the snow and the cold. The reason that we won tonight in New Hampshire, we won last week in Iowa.
It's because of the hard work of so many volunteers. And let me say tonight that this victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. In a very strange way, Bernie Sanders' campaign to be the Democratic hopeful in 2020 is almost a reverse analogue of Donald Trump's successful Republican campaign to become their nominee in 2016. Doug, why is Bernie Sanders winning the hearts and the minds of the Democratic primary voters? I'm not sure that he's actually winning the hearts and the minds of the Democratic primary voters, but what he's doing is he's absolutely churned up a large and passionate group of mostly young people and college students, which is kind of interesting because he's the oldest of the Democratic candidates. So it's we have seen this before. Uh, I think in 1980, John Anderson ran as an alternative to Ronald Reagan. And even though he was a real conservative, he had mm-hmm. thousands upon thousands of mostly college kids turning out for him. And Sanders has been working on this Since 2016, his organization is really solid and strong and spread throughout the nation. And we're seeing the power of that organization right now. But but when you say college kids, and this isn't aimed at you in particular, but when people say Bernie Sanders college kids, basically what they mean is Bernie bros, don't they? They mean college, white college boys. And he's coalition now um, is somewhat more diverse than that. He did very well in Nevada, getting the endorsement of key unions there, and the Latino vote came out and voted for him. There's no question that Sanders performed really well in Nevada uh, with a very diverse coalition, including many, many, many people from minority communities, from the elderly, all across the board. It was far-reaching and very impactful. If he is able to do that in South Carolina or Mm -hmm. any of the March 3rd primary states, then he will be essentially unstoppable. It's not clear whether that's going to happen, though, because I think in Nevada what we saw was a lack of passion for Biden, who would be sort of the logical choice for the traditional Democrats and the union workers in that state. And a lot of the other people split among Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and to some extent Bloomberg, even though he wasn't on the ballot. Emma, Bernie talks about revolution all the time. Is America ready for a revolution? Well, I think the question is really, is America ready for another revolution? Because although he didn't use that language, that's basically what Trump offered, just from a different perspective. Um, Trump was a change candidate um, and he offered his whole thing was to shake everything up, drain the swamp, build the wall. All of the, you know, this was a complete change from the norm, the establishment. And that's the same basic premise that Bernie has, just he has different solutions. So the the gamble that 
um, the Democrats will make if they take Bernie on is do we still want the complete change? Does America still want complete change from what went before, uh, which is why they opted for Trump uh, or enough of them opted for Trump through the college to get him in? Or has four years of chaos under Trump made people yearn for a bit more stability and maybe a little bit more establishment, um, which is not what Bernie would offer? Um, so I think that that is the, the million-dollar question that no one knows the answer to, um, that if Bernie ends up as the candidate, you then have um, two different visions of change fighting each other. If, on the other hand, Biden or Bloomberg or to an extent Buttigieg ends up as the candidate, you then have change versus what you used to know. Um, mm. And I think that will be, either way, a big question is going to be answered in November. Mm. Um, that, that's the thing, isn't it, Doug, that the rise of Sanders in the age of Trump shows you how polarising American politics has become. And does this also reflect the electorate's faith or maybe lack in it of the presidency if we were to go from a President Trump to a President Sanders, another political I, outsider? I actually think this reflects something which I've spoken about many times, which is the lack of understanding among many of the electorate about how our government is supposed to work. And mm -hmm. the biggest problem that many people have with Sanders is that he's got these big ideas, just like Trump did, without any explanation or convincing explanation of how those things would actually get done. And in order to get anything done, you have to elect not just the president, but you have to elect senators and members of Congress who and governors who are at least going in the same direction. And there's very little evidence right now that any of the people who are turning out for Sanders are as passionate about turning out the vote to get Democrats into the Senate so that those bills that Sanders once introduced could actually get passed. And of course, if you look at Sanders' legislative history, that's his it, history. It, <laughs> it, it ain't it ain't great in terms of uh, re really getting things done. Um, so with a Medicare for all, free public college education and a 15 hour minimum wage uh, because uh, down ballot candidates will be will not all be blue because um, he hasn't basically done that spade work and because moderate Americans will be scared to vote for him. Is that correct? Emma? I mean, moderate Americans may well be scared to vote for him. They may equally be scared to vote for Trump. Um, the big question is, will they turn out at all? Um, who it, 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 This may be a, a competition of passionate bases rather than a competition for middle America. Um, and that, again, is another gamble that the Democrats are taking if they go with Sanders. And and it may pay off, you know, some gambles do. Uh, I'm not saying it's the wrong choice. I'm saying that this is the choice and this these are the decisions that the Democratic electorate have before them. I mean, I having just watched uh, a septuagenarian with a personality cult crash and burn to a bumbling blonde, 
I may have my opinions about how well it could or could not work. Um, but I think that Bernie's a better politician than Jeremy Corbyn ever was. I think he's more established within his party than Corbyn was when he first started. Um, you know, Bernie was going to run again from the day he lost the nomination. Um, he would have primaried Hillary um, if she'd won the election. So he has been building that machinery. But I, I think Doug is right that the problem is the machinery is focused around Bernie, around one guy. And this is this is not a new problem for Democrats. Democrats have been absolutely rubbish at understanding that it starts at bloody dog catcher or whatever else it is that you elect over there. It does not start at the top. And you you know, you've got to start building up the infrastructure everywhere. You know, the reason that you lost Wisconsin wasn't just because Hillary didn't visit, it's because there was no bloody infrastructure. Uh, and you've got to, you know, and, and until the Democrats stop thinking that everything runs through the presidency and the Supreme Court, you just won't have the, the kind of, of machinery that you need. And the Republicans clearly worked out a long time ago. But it's hard not to look at the uh, the lesson of Trump because Trump had no infrastructure beneath him. Total outsider candidate. Uh, the whole party machinery laughed at him and he's hijacked the party. Uh, you know, no, no, these are two different things. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely possible and seemingly more and more likely that Bernie's going to win the party the way that Trump won the party because the party is not representative of the country. Uh, you know, in the Republican Party isn't representative of the country. The Democratic Party isn't representative of the country. It's representative of those polarised extremes. So they wanted the most person on either side. They want the most person. But when it comes to the country, that's a different thing. The other thing that's important is that while Trump was the outsider, and certainly he got the nomination by running an outsider campaign, once he got the nomination... The Republican Party absolutely yeah. fell in line. Yeah. And as, as, as Emma said, the Republicans have done a really good job over the years of making sure that their House seats were safe, that their senators were not going to have a real challenge. So they had voters lined up to vote in line all the way up and down the ticket. And the yeah, Democrats and have never done that well. But they, you know, judges, abortion uh, and guns. And they will line up behind those. They will line up behind anyone who promises those three things. Whereas the Democrats love to squabble amongst ourselves about minutia, uh, whilst also not doing the hard yards in the, the you know, the, the tiny districts. Yeah, but, but some I'll, Democrats but, but, are but one on second. What, I was going to say, sure. yeah, exactly. They are, yes. they are and you know. it's getting better. But it's a this is a long term systemic problem that is twenty five, thirty years in the making. Of which gerrymandering is just one of the things which the Democratic Party needs to address. Right, but aren't we aren't we potentially going to have a situation whereby we have this um, almost like an anti enthusiasm vote, i.e. The best uh, marshalling sergeant that the Democratic Party can have is Donald Trump and vice versa, potentially, actually, for the Republican parties. If you have crazy Bernie with his socialist, communist, uh, Leninist ways uh, running, what you could have is a massive turnout. Arguably, on the face of it, you'd have a, a massive vote for democracy. You'll have the biggest turnout in American elections uh, for a generation 
and people actually passionate about it, not necessarily who they're voting for, but who they're voting against. Mm. That is what Trump is banking on. And the scary thing is that the polls indicate it's working. Uh, right now, if you do a poll, particularly in some of the red states, and you ask what's wrong with the Democrats, one of the top responses is, I'm not into that socialism thing. Well, Sanders is the only one who is openly espousing socialism. And in fact, Trump's policies, some of them are actually more socialist than anything the mainstream Democrats have ever proposed. But Trump has defined the Democrats as extreme socialists. Step us through those policies, Doug, because you said this uh, via email to me. And at first I was like, what? what are you talking about there, Doug? Go through them. So basically Trump's whole approach has been wealth distribution or redistribution. So basically take take from... Emma, I'm pulling a face too. Go on. All right, go on. I, I'm, I'm listening, Doug. I don't think I agree so far, but you're going you're gonna to pull me around with this. Go. Keep going. So Trump has increased the taxes on folks like us mm-hmm. and distributed more of that government money to the wealthy few as well as the people that he's counting on for support. So, for example, the farmers bailout, the coal industry, you know, those are essentially government handouts to sustain industries that are struggling and in massive amounts. That is more socialism than anything that prior presidents. Emma, you're shaking your head. Uh, Correct jug on uh, socialism from a European perspective. I get that he has redistributed some money to some industries, but actually that has mostly reached the large agribusinesses, for example, in farming, rather than the small family farm. And socialism is not targeted at specific industries unless you're nationalising those industries. Exactly. It's not what he's done. Actually, um, whereby you nationalise the profits and redistribute them to the nation. So I would say that that's a miss, or certainly not the way that socialism would be described here, where we actually do try it on occasion. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll take that point. But fundamentally, what the Republicans say they are against is... And state, in, state intervention in the economy and what yes. Trump has actually done. It's um, a corporate nationalism yeah yeah i think that's a better word rather than so i I wouldn't describe it as socialism and and you you can have fascist states that are you know hugely interventionist but are nothing like socialism yeah but that's exactly what the nazis did in the 1930s so they were they put loads of money into uh mercedes and vw as as prestige german companies Mm. that they weren't really interested in that money then trickling down into the pockets of the german workers Okay. Now, right. if you look at what Sanders is talking about, though, um, he's talking about nationalizing healthcare and nationalizing education in various ways. Um, if you talk to hasn't just one second there, Doug? Hasn't this been one of the strengths of Bernie's campaign, whether he becomes the nominee or not? That he has moved the debate massively on. So, um, whether it is Medicaid. For Medicare for all, sorry. Um, let's put that slightly to one side because I think that argument has been won. There was, there's going to be some expansion of Obamacare. 
whether it is truly you, you can't have your private plan or not. Uh, but there's going to be an expansion if there's a democratic president, full stop. And so he he can take he can take a lot of credit for that. He's moved the argument on uh, free public college education. Hardcore democratic voters, democratic operatives believe this is a great way to help level up the economy, to give poorer kids um, a start. Be- and but also that they're looking at the, the amount of debt that middle class uh, kids actually get when when they go to college. That's a, you know again, this is Bernie Sanders banging that drum. And fifteen dollars uh, per hour is a minimum wage. Which one of those democratic candidates isn't for that? You know, Buttigieg is for it. Everyone's for it. So. You know, he really has um, shaped the the policies of the Democratic Party going forward, hasn't it? Well, yes, but it's also sound economics. I mean, if you talk to honest academic economists. Doug, it it might be, but Clinton wasn't saying that four years ago. Um, I thought she was for free college four years ago. um, Clinton had some programs to address the, the, the college debt. And to increase the availability of free, uh, certainly free two-year college programs, uh, and and but not that's as sort universal of a, as not as universal as as what Sanders is talking about. But you know, Buttigieg, uh, you know, one of his big big things is that there should be programs to forgive student debt for those who go into public service, such as teaching, medicine, and so on. That's something which we actually passed into law about 20 or 30 years ago. I think it was either under Reagan or might have been under Clinton. Yet the current administration has basically made it impossible for people to actually get those loan forgiveness. Uh, Literally 99% of the people who apply for it are turned down, which is absurd. We need more teachers. We need more police officers. Somehow we have to have policies that support people going into those service industries. Now, what Sanders is talking about is not only free college, but also forgiving student debt. That's for everybody, not just people doing public service. Right. And that's kind of a challenge from just putting the numbers together. There also are some equity issues to that. For example, those of us who have paid our student debt might not be so thrilled about everybody else getting this handout essentially there may be some other ways to reach that same goal and i think that's actually where elizabeth warren i think has some strengths i mean for me the the issue i would have um and i've kind of gone back and forward on this issue but it became a massive thing here um they introduced tuition fees just after i went to university the first time um so i paid for my masters and i didn't pay for my undergraduate I was really kind of in favour of, of there being some payment because it's so expensive to run as a, a and so kind of exclusive. And I do have, you know, better earning prospects because I have a master's degree. Um, but I have to admit that the difference, it turned me into a consumer rather than a student. And I really felt that. And actually, that really sort of made me question again whether I did support the policy. Where I would have concern is over here, the general deal in terms of public service is that you will have a lower wage, but a better pension. 
and so your bet and better job security. Now that's been chip, 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 chipped away at, and that's having huge workforce issues. It's far less attractive to go into the public sector now. What my concern would be is that I don't think you have that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but have that ethos of lower wage, better security, better pension in public service. Um, and if you don't have that and you don't have the advantage of the free college tuition, how do you get the best and the brightest into public service? Well, and that's but precisely the problem. For me, it's even more fundamental than that, that surely this is a way of getting people from disadvantaged, relatively disadvantaged uh, communities who haven't gone to college, uh, helping to get them that give them that that ladder up that leg up the ladder and an offering free further education higher education is utterly key with that if you want social mobility that's what you do because otherwise all you're doing is calcifying the whole, the whole effect and it's those that have um it becomes a, a closed shop societally intellectually professionally because they have the resources um to to pay for higher further education so i just think this is a fundamental right uh, you talk about um you were on the cusp of uh, tuition fees coming mm. in in the uk um i was the other side of that as well so i was the very last year of um of education within the uk where it was everything was free you yeah, even got yeah, so yeah, housing benefit paid for oh, you. <laughs> and you look at the rates of social mobility in the UK and they come to a crashing halt by the end of the 90s because of that. Now, poor working class kids, it's much, much, much harder for them to become lawyers or doctors without them being able to go and do um, higher education free of charge. You know, I think it's I think it's a un- education is a universal right, just like I, healthcare. I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but what I'm saying is that mm-hmm. if you take the Pete Buttigieg plan, mm-hmm. what he's trying to solve is the how do you get the best and the brightest from all cohorts into public service. Now, my question is, if you then offer that as a universal service, uh, as Bernie wants to do, but you don't change the offer of public service to make sure that it is more attractive you are then going to find that you may have this huge part of the state that's offering free education, but you're not getting uh, really great innovation in other parts of the state because it's not an attractive, a more attractive place to go and work than the private sector. Hmm. What Emma's pointed to is, is the fundamental shift that has occurred in the United States. Up until the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan became president, the paradigm was exactly as you described, where the federal jobs in particular, but generally all government jobs, had modestly lower salaries, but really solid benefits. I mean, for example, I've got a cousin who went to work for the federal government right out of college, and he knew that if he stuck with it for, I think, 25 years, he was set. And that was, to him, a stronger incentive than going to get a much higher salary in the private sector. Um, but you but know what, though, Doug? We've what, done away with I, 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 We're slightly going down a rabbit hole here, um, and a very interesting one. But the change in the federal employee compensation that occurred mm-hmm. in the 1980s mm-hmm. is what has driven this wedge. Because what happened was, as you pushed the value of taking a federal job down, 
-hmm. you had more labor unions and other people clamoring for better compensation. So, okay, you're going to you're going to pay us less and you're cutting our benefits. That's not fair. We want at least parity with the private sector. So now you've got this tension that did not exist before. And okay. Doug, Doug, That's I'm calling time on this because we because we, we are slightly going down a rabbit hole, and uh, it's a very interesting one. And I'm, I'm going to edit. But I'm going to be. Actually, uh, I don't think it is a rabbit hole because I think actually this is fundamental to the argument that the Democrats are having: is what kind of state do you want the states to be? And I think that they, that actually there is a real tension in these questions because unless you can answer. The, mm. If you give everyone public services in this way, how mm. do you deliver that without making changing public service jobs? And I haven't heard that offer. So I do think that this is important to the question that the Democrats are asking themselves. But one second, though, but, right ju- but, just, but, but just to answer that, though, but just to answer that, though, right? I would say that the where we should be pitching this is slightly more to do with so, social mobility and then what the policies of Sanders uh, would do to facilitate that, as opposed to the minutiae of uh, of public service per no, no, se. No, 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 no. Uh, it's not minutiae. It's not minutiae. Minutia. 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 Do any social mobility without having the people in government who make those programs happen and work. And the point is, unless you can attract the talent to do that, you can't do it. Doesn't matter what of your big ideas are, until you can deliver those big ideas and attract the talent to deliver them, you can't do it. And that is the question that I don't think is being answered. And the oh, Republicans a have debate. a very interesting the Republicans have a very interesting perspective on this exact problem and Mm -hmm. we're seeing it play out right now so trump was elected to cut government and you know state department workforce cut by i think a third um entire units at the justice department wiped out huge number of vacancies in the federal government a lot of the professional staff the experts the scientists the folks that actually figure out the policies gone because they were not valued now we have potentially a pandemic of an infectious disease and the government experts who would have been advising the president Doug, on exactly Doug, you, this. You're worrying. Mike out. Pence has got it. Mike Pence has got it. And he's got a great record in Indiana when it comes to uh, disease control. So don't worry. Pence has got it. He'll just hold his Bible and pray. We're all good. But don't worry there about There are it. some Republicans who are OK with that. And. I mean, if that's the majority of Americans, so be it. But I don't think it is. I, I suppose the point that I was trying to make, and the pair of you beat me up, is that public service and uh, is only one part of helping to level up uh, the, the American economy. And the key driver of any economy is actually uh, uh, private industry. And what we need, as well as having... Um, young African-American boys to aspire to be uh, doctors is also for them to be to aspire to be business leaders as well. And any functioning economy needs more of the latter 
and less of the former. So How it's do important... you get them to aspire to be that if you can't employ good public school teachers? Sister, I'm with you in this revolution. Right. But we, we, we slightly do, do need to move on. I think we've done uh, a good 10 minutes on this. But we, just need, but we, but we, <laughs> we need to just very slightly move on. Will Super Tuesday be the moderate wing of the Democratic Party's last chance to stop crazy Bernie? Probably so. I mean, this is going to be the most broad-based day of voting. We're going to have California, Texas, and a whole lot of other people in very different parts of the country casting their ballot and plenty of Republicans showing up in places where the primary is open and they can vote trying to mess things up. So it's a wild card and it will be the defining point. I think everything everything after Super Tuesday is going to really not matter. I mean, the question that will be asked on Super Tuesday is, can Bernie get a plurality? Um, can he get an unstoppable plurality? Uh, and that will set the narrative from there to the convention. It will also establish, perhaps, who is the solid number two. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I, and I, I suspect that after Super Tuesday, the, the field will whittle down to... Well, but to, to maybe Probably three... Th- yeah, three or four. Let's him <laughs> carry on it, his money. It's very hard to see. I mean, for example, Buttigieg, who I, I'm very impressed by, and I actually got to see him uh, at an event in uh, in Seattle uh, two weeks ago. Uh, if he bombs in South Carolina and in the Super Tuesday states, I don't see a path forward for him. And Klobuchar, about- who is also very impressive, but if she doesn't show up in the better numbers and the thing about Buttigieg and Klobuchar is that they're young enough to give it another shot whereas like this is Biden's last run it's probably Elizabeth Warren's last run although even if she ran in four years she would be younger than Bernie is now and Biden is now I believe um it's Bloomberg's last run and presumably only run um so they have less incentive to drop out gracefully. Um, mm. So that, 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 I think, will play into their decision-making. Whereas, whereas Klobuchar and Buttigieg can be graceful. It's not my time, but I'm still young. Build up their machine. They've built up their profile, build up their machine for four years the way Bernie did. Uh, just just very last question uh, to the pair of you on this. Why has Senator Elizabeth Warren failed? Doug, you answer first, sir. I think she's had a hard time connecting with people who are not as interested in the policy details as she is. And unfortunately, she comes across, depending on whether she's talking to a, depending on who she's talking to, she comes across either like a schoolteacher mother type person or a coastal elite, the academic, the ivory tower people. And it's unfortunate because we judge women differently from men. The fact is Elizabeth Warren is probably the most in, she is probably smarter on policies than any of the other people up there. But 
that's not what drives the voters. Probably about it. There's no probably about it. She absolutely is. Her intellectual chops are. If Elizabeth Warren had had run this exact campaign as a bloke, she would be storming it. She would be absolutely effing storming it. I think you're right. Between her ability, her you know, her ability to take down the unpopular candidate, her absolute coverage of policy detail. No bloke ever got told off for looking like a schoolteacher, ever, in the history of everness. Um, you know, and in part, she suffers because she's in Bernie's lane and therefore his wake, and he has got the machine that he's been building up. He's got the cult of personality thing that he's been building up. But she could have, if she were a guy, the moderates would have gone, you know what, we want to stop Bernie and we could work with him with what's the I can't think what the male equivalent of Elizabeth would be but you know I, I do think that her uh, performance in the South Carolina debate was really good and had she been as good in the prior debates she might have at least been closer it's much harder for for a woman to be strong and commanding we don't associate uh, culturally, those traits with a woman. When a woman does it, we call her shrill, hectoring, uh, a whole load of pejoratives. And and interestingly, uh, Doug, Amy, uh, who 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 we both know, is the reason why we know each other. Um, she said uh, she watched that debate um, and just thought Elizabeth Warren uh, murdered everybody because she did. She spoke to her mother. Her mother is what seventy. 273 said mom what do you reckon to elizabeth warren and she said shrill right you know the cultural bias of how a woman is supposed to behave is just writ large and with the and with older voters they just say it just feels wrong on that note super tuesday is still yet to happen Warren is the president america should have but doesn't deserve (laughs) <laughs> and on that note, uh, uh, we, we, we move over to the diverse UK Parliament on the other side of the... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Pond. When I was first elected, there were just two, as I say, African-Caribbean women or black. I don't mind using the political term black for me, but there were two, two of us, just two. But there's a number of us now, so it's quite interesting to look around Parliament and see other African-Caribbean MPs on both sides. So not only on the Labour side, but also on the Conservative side. It's a different uh, feeling. It's obviously not representative enough. There's still just 6% of Parliament uh, who are African-Caribbean compared to about 12% Uh, as the population as a whole so we've still got a long way to go but it's nice to see diversity in parliament in terms of gender race and sexuality the group of mps currently sitting in parliament is the most diverse in history emma how should we mark this milestone um it's a really interesting question actually because part of me says that we shouldn't because that's how it should be uh, it shouldn't be remarkable. Um, of course, we should celebrate that we finally got there. Um, but I would like us to stop having to celebrate these things and start just going, well, yeah, that's what the country looks like. And? <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. However, um, as diverse as this parliament is, and let's look at the proportion of MPs and from um, ethnic minorities, there are a total of uh, 220 female MPs. So there are more female Labour MPs than there are male. Yeah. Um, and also that is the same in the Liberal Democrats. We are, of course, about to elect a white bloke as our leader, but, you know. <laughs> Let's just park on that because I, I, I think that is kind of fascinating as well. So John McDonald um, said before the last election, before Labour, the Labour Party got its drubbing, he said the next Labour Party leader needs to be a woman. And I just took it for granted that the next Labour Party leader would be. This was before the election result, admittedly. Um, I know I've asked this question before. I can't remember the answer that you gave. Why is it out of all of the UK political parties, the Labour Party is the only one that seems to be incapable of electing a woman, considering that now they have more female MPs than male? Uh, They do have more female MPs than male. There are a couple of answers, none of which are particularly satisfactory. Um, Go on. There is an endemic misogyny problem in the Labour Party, and anyone who tells you there isn't is talking, um, well, literal bollocks. But but is that misogyny problem bigger, greater, more insidious than the one that I would presume sits in the Conservative Party? And they've had two female leaders. They have. Now, the thing about the Conservative Party versus the Labour Party is the individualism versus collectivism problem. Now, Mm. so the Conservative Party can have individual women rising through the ranks, uh, but don't do a great deal for the the female collective, as it were. The Labour Party do a great deal for for the female collective, but still close their eyes and think a bloke in a grey suit is what a leader looks like. Um, And because they don't think that they go for individualism, although what else is the cult of leadership that existed under Tony Blair, existed under Jeremy Corbyn, really failed to take light under Ed Miliband, let's face it. Um, But the the Labour Party wants to be led despite its belief in collectivism. The Tory Party wants to be led 
by a strong individual. And if that strong individual is a really strong woman and they have to be stronger than most to get through, then mm. they will take that. It's interesting. Just to connect this back to what we're saying about Elizabeth Warren, um, Margaret Thatcher modified the way that she spoke. You listen to recordings of her from 1975 when she was the Minister for Education to be- when she became Prime Minister, her voice drops an octave. Mm. I'm, I'm, so, I'm incredibly confused about this because one in 10 of the new uh, MPs who are sitting in Parliament just to slightly move on from just talking about women, mm. are now actually non-white. And one of the main charges against Brexit was that it was a racist vote and Britain was kind of putting up barriers and wanting to return to a bygone past. But how does that line up with the fact that uh, we now have 65, one in 10, and the, the non-white population of Britain is um, 14%, so it's not far off, mm that uh, we have 65 non-white faces within Parliament. How does that sit with our notions of endemic, systematic racism in Britain today and the fact that we're about to leave the European Union? Take a look at where those people came from because most of them or many of them went Mm -hmm. to private schools and fancy colleges. So on the on the conservative side, yes, Doug, 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 on the conservative side, yes. Yeah, but on the Labour side, they represent communities that are incredible. So they're in cities generally and places that voted remain. So on the the Labour side, you've got people who represent very, very strongly mixed communities. On the conservative side, as Doug says, you do have people. It's a class thing. Um, Mm. But it's not as simple as we did Brexit, therefore we're racist, or we have some BME MPs, therefore we're not racist. Uh, You know, people vote on a whole series of slew of things, and you can be BME and xenophobic, for example. Um, Quite a few of the biggest champions of Brexit for quite closed reasons or for quite free market reasons. They were bitter both, were BME people. So it's mm. not a case of... Can, can, I just, can I just hold you there, Emma? BME, black and ethnic minorities. It's a British expression which doesn't translate over oh, in the sorry. States. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said BAME, which is how yeah. we're saying now. So that, that's what BME stands for. Yeah, go on. Oh, so yeah. as you were, Emma. Um, so... It, it is, um, it's not as simple as that, that kind of binary. Uh, there are many different strands of looking at traditional British racism, if, if you want to call it that, going mm. back to things to do with colonialism and arguments about um, whether we should be celebrating or embarrassed by our colonial history or just aware of it. <laughs> um, there are questions about um working class racism versus upper class racism which are two very very different things that happen one which is about kind of you know the immediate effect on me and my community and the other which is a more class-based the british upper working class which is white are the best people in the world Mm. um basis I, this this is not my opinion. I hasten to add, not least because I'm about as upper class as a Marmite sandwich. Um, the new parliament has 173 MPs went to independent schools. So this is going to your point, Doug. 
four in five of these are Conservative MPs, hence uh, what, what I kind of said before, Doug. Uh, this is according to figures from the Sutton Trust, uh, an organisation that campaigns for social mobility. Um, the vast majority of MPs still went to university, uh, with 21% either going to Oxford or Cambridge. Doug, this is one of the things which I always remark upon with to Americans about how different um, America is um, constituted. Um, yes, you have lots of Harvard um, alumni who are in, in politics, but um, those Ivy League universities don't have the stranglehold on American politics in the way that Oxford and Cambridge do in the UK, do they? We do have a bit more diversity in that respect, but you still have the the clubbiness, the inside group. It's like there are 2018's midterm election was remarkable because that was one of the first times where there was a large number of people elected to Congress who really were coming from the outside in reaction to what was happening with President Trump and mm-hmm. a huge class of women. Um, with amazing backgrounds. I mean, eminently qualified people, you know, military veterans, scientists, uh, you name it. The problem that we have, though, is that we still have a society that judges women as a separate category or judges minority people as a separate category. Uh, You know, I've heard people say they're not supporting Warren because they don't want to go through the, the, the problem that Hillary Clinton had when she ran. They're just thinking, oh, woman, therefore they're all the same. Uh, you know, well, or you know, it's, it's have, still in the box. I don't want to have Biden because he's too like Bernie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's also an, another phenomenon in, in America when it comes to uh, voting for women. And this is what pollsters have started to, to record, is that people say... I'm not sexist. I could vote for a woman to be president, but I'm not sure my neighbours could. Right. So, so, it's, so it's a way of getting yourself Third off sexism. the hook, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. So that's the reason why I'm not actually going to vote for a woman, because I could, but my neighbours won't, so it's a wasted vote. Um, you, you're completely right about the uh, the last intake in Congress, where one in five uh, members, 22% of the US House of Representatives and Senate are of racial or ethnic minorities. Uh, so it is by far the most uh, racially and ethnically diverse. Um, but the racial divide is incredibly stark when you look at the two political parties in, in the United States. Um, all of these, the vast majority of these non-white politicians are in the Democratic Party. They're not Republicans. Whereas, at least in the UK, yes, the Labour Party has a preponderance of people who are non-white, but not solely. And that, and you can see that in the British uh, cabinet. Why is the Republican Party so white and the Democratic Party so relatively diverse, Doug? Money. I think it comes down to the people who have money don't want to let other people in to have a shot at earning money themselves. And it's Nixon's Southern strategy, but it's been going for a long time, isn't it? Absolutely. 
Mm, all right. That, 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 that's a short and succinct answer. Um, how – let's just – one of the reasons why I brought this up as a topic is because it, it's really close to me, um, not just because of the, the very obvious thing that I come wrapped up in black skin, but um, I'm one of these weird people who calls themselves not only uh, – I don't call myself black and British, I call myself black and English. And it is um, marked that all of these uh, black and ethnic minority MPs in the United Kingdom are all English that all sit in English seats um, but just slightly moving up moving on from that um, we have a new Chancellor of the Exchequer who is basically the finance minister for our American listeners um, Emma tell us how he's come to gain his position and what ructions did we see with the previous Chancellor this week in Parliament so interestingly just uh, just coming on from our last topic uh, the mm-hmm. Chancellor of the Exchequer is a British Indian man um, as was the and the previous Chancellor of the Exchequer was a British Asian man, um, mm-hmm. and they are. Though, though Savi Javid was Muslim, so I think he had Muslim, Pakistani, Pakistani parents. Than, yeah. yeah, but they're both British Asian um, conservatives, which is interesting. Although very different backgrounds, as far as I can tell. Um, Sajid Javid was the son of a bus driver, um, and Rishi Sunak seems a lot posher to me. I don't know his background, but he definitely comes across. He, as- his father or father-in-law, I think his father-in-law is a billionaire. There you go. Um, but yeah, you're completely right. He runs a software company in, in so India. He's a billionaire. What happened, it's always been the case, or at least long, long been the case, that the Chancellor of the Exchequer is the second most powerful person in government and has a pole of power of their own. Um, this often leads to tensions between them and the Prime Minister. Um And sometimes those tensions are creative and they work really well together. So George Osborne and David Cameron worked really well as a team. Um, And sometimes they're less so. uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did not get on um, eventually. They started out as best friends. Then there was a falling out over who would run for what, when, and who would be the prime minister eventually and blah, blah, blah. And then, so Gordon Brown, whilst Chancellor of the Exchequer, accrued a lot of power to that ministry and kept it and made it a big, powerful ministry and essentially ran a lot of domestic policy through it um, because what fun, what got funded was what got made happen domestically. Now, that has, uh, since Theresa May then got, to run the Conservative Party after David Cameron. She appointed Philip Hammond and then fell out with him very quickly and wanted to sack him and was going to sack him after her triumph in the 2017 general election. But she didn't triumph and ended up uh, (laughs) with a a minus majority. So she had to do all sorts of deals and it turned out that she didn't then have the strength to sack her Chancellor. So he then went off to be a separate pole of power uh, and was part of pushing back against uh, the more extremes of Brexit. Boris Johnson watched all this and decided that he didn't want that to happen. And more importantly, Boris Johnson's special advisor, Dominic Cummings, watched all this and decided that he didn't want that to happen. So he, when he was first elected, Boris Johnson appointed Sajid Javid, who had run against him uh, for leader, um, but not in a particularly opposing Boris way. Um, 
So Sajid Javid got made the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, and he set about being the Chancellor of the Exchequer and doing the job and having his own people and having his own advisors. And last September, October, I think it was, um, Boris forced him to sack one of them. Uh, we're not entirely sure why, uh, or at least I'm not. I'm sure there are other people who know. Um but it was partly a power play from number 10. You, you, you can't have this person in your team. Now, when there was a reshuffle, uh, which is when, um, so unlike in America, there's this one day where the prime minister goes, all the jobs are changing and everyone's got to change their job. Uh, and nobody knows anything anymore because you're all starting in a different position for no good reason. It's like literally the stupidest thing we do in our politics. Um and so there was a reshuffle and Sajid Javid was offered that he could keep his job, but he had to sack all of his advisors and there would be an advisory team that would sit between number 10 and number 11, appointed by number 10, appointed by the prime minister and therefore managed by the prime minister and in the gift of the prime minister. And Sajid Javid just wasn't willing to take those conditions because it would have completely stymied his ability to do his job. Rishi Sunak, on the other hand, having come from a much lower position, was very happy to take those conditions if he gets to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. It's a huge leap for him. So mm. that is why, that's that's the Kremlinology, as we call it, of what happened behind the scenes. Mm. Yeah, somebody who's an ethnic minority. Um, it, it is surprising, and it shouldn't be surprising, to see the second most uh, powerful position in British politics for there to be a, a person of brown skin uh, holding it to be replaced by another person of brown skin. You know, yeah. I, I, you, you can't help but remark on it and say, wow, that's happened. It's quite you know? an extraordinary thing that both that position and the Home Secretary yes. are, are both people of colour. Now, I mean... And I that's the third great... most, and that just, just for American listeners, that's the third most powerful position yeah. in, in the in, in the UK uh, kind of political firmament. Uh, the 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 Home Secretary is the Interior Minister, yeah. uh, you know, in effect, you know, deals with policing policy, etc. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm I am no fan of Pretty Patel at all. She's a dreadful woman. Um, and a dreadful minister and, and uh, apparently a dreadful bully. And a bully. Well. Yes, a bully, yeah. yeah. Um, but it is it is worth you know marking that, that that has happened. Interestingly, there has never been a female, either Chancellor of the Exchequer or Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is where Labour... So uh, in British politics, each minister is shadowed by someone from the opposition party. So, like, we always have a shadow chance of the Exchequer, a shadow Home Secretary. Um, there have been female Home Secretaries before. There has never been a Theresa female May. Chancellor yeah. or shadow Chancellor. Well, Jackie Smith was the first, of course. Mm. Um, ju- just to quickly end this section talking about uh, diversity. Um, among the 650 MPs, there are at least 45 who are openly gay, lesbian or bisexual. Um, with that in mind, uh, I'm going to throw this question out to you first, Doug, uh, because uh, the word, the words identity and politics are definitely something which emanated from this side of the Atlantic, from America. Surely, if you have at least 45 openly gay MPs, identity politics is dead. 
we have we have minorities of all shapes and colors, whether they're people of different hues, different religions, sexualities. We have women uh, prominently um, creating policy on both sides of the aisle in the UK. There is no such thing as identity politics. The, the right are, are right in this regard, aren't they? People can rise up through the sweat of their own brow. I don't think we have the answer to that yet. Um, you may be right, and we've certainly seen some major change. Yeah, it's very much um, a rhetorical question. I'm not saying that was my opinion, Doug. So don't say that I'm, I'm right. I'm just I'm, I'm just posing posing the question generally. What is remarkable, and I am not going to give our current president credit for anything, but he has managed to distract people enough by the absolute lack of qualifications mm-hmm. of many of his nominees for senior positions that their identity is just not even mentioned. Whereas being gay would have completely disqualified an individual from being nominated to be an ambassador to a major country or to be a cabinet level official or whatever. And now it's like, that's like, you know, the fifth or sixth item down when people are saying all the reasons why this person doesn't deserve to be the next head of the intelligence community. I would just like to say one thing on diversity that is often missed. Um, It's wonderful that we've moved so far in terms of women's representation, in terms of LGBT representation, in terms of BAME, or we would call it um, black and ethnic minority representation. One thing that's really, really missing uh, and is rarely talked about is disability representation. And I think Mm. that's something that's really, really important and something that we fall down on a great deal at all levels. You know what? Amen to that, sister. There's arguably bigger prejudice for us to get over to do with that because a lot of the time when we talk about politicians and leaders in particular, we talk about them being strong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, as a student of history, you go back and and, and you read about uh, FDR and the fact that he was he was in a wheelchair, but never on film. Yeah. Yeah. You know, never on film because he knew that he needed to project strength. Everybody around him knew that he was crippled by polio. The American pub- public didn't. The press kept it quiet. We live in very different times uh, in terms of that regard. But um, if we're talking about a woman being shrill, to have a leader right now with, let's say, cerebral palsy um, is going to be a large stretch for, for many people if we think that our leaders and our politicians need to project strength. You know, and that is a bigger prejudice for us all to get over, you could argue. And ultimately, it's the very final one. Um, Great session. Thank you, guys. Let's go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. All right. It's that time when uh, we kick off our shoes, put on our slippers or sorry, our house shoes for our American um, (laughs) American listeners. yeah, yeah. And and we uh, open maybe a bottle of red, maybe maybe a bottle of white. And just chill out with our loved one. Yeah, well, you probably throw them together and call it Rosé. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And we chill out with our loved one. And and we talk about something which has interested us, uh, fascinated us, and um, lifted our spirit in the last seven days. So, Doug, you always think very deeply about your takeaways of the last seven days. So I'm coming to you first, sir. Um, 
in the midst of bad things, there's always something good. And while there is plenty of reason to be concerned and at least alert to、mm-hmm. the spread of the coronavirus, the positive part is that finally we're getting Americans to wash their damn hands. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Emma Burnell, what about you? Okay, so it was my birthday last weekend. Happy birthday! Thank you very much. And the best birthday present that my mum got me was that she just downloaded to our shared Kindle account、uh, the latest book by Ellie Griffiths in the Ruth Galloway、um, Chronicles,、uh, and she let me read it first. So I'm halfway through. It is as brilliant as all the other books. This is the twelfth in the series now, and.、Uh, I absolutely adore these books. They are wonderful page turners. The、um, the cast of characters that have been around since book one they're they're murder mysteries, but they're so much more than that. They're you know they've got、mm. this wonderful culture that、um, is all around them, all based in Norfolk,、um, and there are druids and mysticism. Uh, and guardian readers、uh, and policemen who are originally from Blackpool and therefore a bit northern,、uh, and it's just all of British life is there,、um, and it's not in the city, and it's 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 sort of absolutely lovely. I mean, frankly, I'm not entirely having been to North Norfolk. She manages to make it considerably more ethnic diverse, ethnically diverse. <laughs> I believe it actually to be, but. You know that's because、uh, she's a lovely liberal writer and, and very interesting. And Ruth Galloway is my absolute heroine. And I have told Ellie Griffiths on Twitter in no uncertain terms that if she ever gets to make a TV series, I'm playing Ruth. Oh, stunning!、Uh, we'll, have, we'll have to give that a read. Um, mine is, and I got a sneaky feeling I might have slightly said this before,、um, many, 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 many Midlantic, Midlanticks ago,、um, but. I, I use Shazam,、uh, the app on my phone, and I've been using Shazam. I don't know, let's、uh, at least since 2010. For me, it's still magic. I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how this thing recognises、uh, the song、uh, which is playing around me. It's still magic. I still get a sense of wonder when it says, "Oh, you've just been playing." Um, Only love can break your heart by Saint Etienne. <laughs> I just go, how do you know this, right? But Shazam with Spotify has completely and utterly revolutionised、uh, my car journeys because what those two apps do when they work together is they create a list of your Shazam tracks. And what it means for me is, so when I go into a bar or a restaurant, and there's a great piece of music, and I just shazam it, and I don't know what this music is, so it's just introducing me to so many new artists. And then you've forgotten the name of that artist two weeks later, but then you just play your shazam list on Spotify, and you go, "This is a great piece of music. That's another great piece of music. Oh my god, this is an amazing piece of music." <laughs> Because it's just been—I've just grabbed them all from these、uh, random places where I've just heard、uh, great music. So Shazam with Spotify, your Shazam list—that is my takeaway of the week. Just use those two things together, and you will have the most killer playlist ever of artists who you didn't even know existed. 
Brilliant. I think that's just about time um, on Mid Atlantic. And but you can go to midatlanticshow.com and you can click on the Speakpipe tab, which is over on the right. Or you can leave a voicemail note to agree or disagree with anything that Doug in particular has said. If you want to disagree, <laughs> if you want to disagree with anything that anyone said, disagree with Doug. Uh, big up Emma and just give me lots of plaudits. Uh, See, they do treat women clicking. in politics differently. <laughs> <laughs> like, go on, go on to uh, midatlanticshow.com. You can also send me an email. I'm quite simply royfield at gmail.com um, if you'd like to respond to me that way. We're going to see you all again to cease.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.